David wanted the day off today, so he asked me to fill in. <laughs> so today, I want to talk about I want to talk about the paragraph of Luke twenty-four. So. When it first became apparent to people that there was an un, what they called an unfortunate coincidence on the calendars this year, April 1st and Easter, I started thinking about it. And I was like, actually, this isn't an unfortunate coincidence at all. This is a brilliant coincidence. This is a picture. Well, actually, this is not. This is graffiti. Well, it's a picture of graffiti found in Rome. This dates back to somewhere between the late 1st and 3rd century AD. Some of you might remember this years and years ago. I showed this once. Anyway, this depicts the earliest perception of Christianity. This is a drawing of the actual image so that you can see it better. What it was. There is a man with a donkey's head hanging on a cross. And then to the left is this guy called Aleximenos, some Roman. And he's raising his hand in worship of this God. And the inscription reads, Aleximenos worships his God. This was a picture, graffiti, drawn to make fun of this man personally for worshiping a fool of a God. That's what the head of an ass signifies, right? This guy's a fool. And to more widely ridicule the greater growing community of this new religion called Christianity. Fools following a fool. You see, Jesus Christ was not crucified in a vacuum. Sometimes I think we forget that. And Christianity did not develop in a society devoid of religion. That's another mistake we make, thinking we're the only religion there ever was. There were all sorts of active, vibrant religions throughout the empire at this time. Yet among all the stories of the Greek and Roman gods, a god being killed out of love to save his enemies throughout grace was unheard of. Grace was for fools. Hengel points out how in this first century world, this new religion would have been literal madness. Literal madness. And obviously, whoever took the time to draw this picture thought the same. But my question this morning is, on Easter morning, that I want to ask us all to think about, do we think the same? Do we think the same? Now, I know the short answer is obviously not, David. That's why we're in church on Easter. We don't think the same as Alex Amenos. We worship proudly the same God as Alex Amenos. And I am sure those of us that do have faith do worship a God named Jesus. But I encourage you today and this year and the rest of your life, like I've been doing for 53 years, take a closer look at this Jesus we find in the pages of the Gospels. Is this really who we're worshiping? This Jesus in the pages of the Gospels is ludicrous, scandalous, crazy. Are we worshiping him? Or have we cleaned up his image for him? Maybe we've taken off the donkey's head and put George Clooney's head on it. Nice and handsome and strong. Have we taken the crown of thorns and replaced it with Caesar's scepter? Have we taken Christ's impoverished humanity? This man that strolled through the pages of the Gospels, 
was betrayed, abandoned, despised, marginalized, homeless? And have we taken him and made him charismatic, popular, mainstream, rich, influential? Have we taken his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his self-sacrificing love that always comes across as weak and foolish in our culture and given him an assault rifle in one hand and a victory cigar in another. I know that's how Jesus is thought of amongst people. Sadly, it's not in the Bible. Now, this is not meant to make us feel bad if we do these things. Getting to a place where we actually follow the Jesus in Scripture and not some cultural ideal takes years. It's a massive paradigm shift. I have a good friend who's been doing this for years, even went to a Christian college and still doing it. I'm still doing it at 53 years old. Just when I think I understand how foolish Jesus is compared to our world, I realize, oh man, I'm still creating a Jesus that I can't find in the Bible. It's just what I want him to be. So I'm not saying this to make anyone feel bad. Because sometimes, especially for those of us that are in church, it's even harder when for years we have been taught by other Christians that Jesus is reasonable and not foolish. That he looks like us and not like this. But St. Paul said the story of Jesus was foolish to the world's wisdom back then, and it still is 2,000 years later. Consider one of the biggest industries in the world. Movies. Billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. If you do a Google search to find films about grace and forgiveness, that's what the Christ event is all about, grace and forgiveness. It's not very helpful. I typed up top ten films on forgiveness, and I didn't get a top ten list. I got people's personal suggestions, but you go to those lists, you start looking at the movies, you're like, no, that's really not what it's about. That film's about something entirely different. Google is stumped by that query. However, if you do a Google search for films on revenge, oh my gosh, you won't just get top 10 films, you get top, top 10 lists, you get top 100 lists. Some of the highest grossing films and most critically acclaimed films of all time are in some way or another about revenge. And I would bet right now, if you think of your own top 10 films, I bet some way or another they glorify revenge. I know recently I was having a conversation with other Game of Thrones fanatics, and it becomes quite clear whenever you start talking with Game of Thrones people that one of the more dubious pleasures of watching Game of Thrones is waiting for the bad guys to die. And in fact, one of the bad guys, like when he did what he did and then he finally died, if you were outside, I think you could have heard a collective chair go up around the world when this particular guy died. And I get it. Revenge strikes a deep chord in nearly everyone. Hollywood's not run by dummies. They might be jerks, but they're not dummies. They understand that if we are human, we have probably been hurt at one time or another. And if we have been hurt, we are going to love watching a film about revenge because it will resonate with us. It will resonate with us. We can all work up hatred for those who cause great hurt. We can all celebrate when payback comes to the bad guys. It's a perfect formula for box office success. Perfect. 
What makes me sad is it's become a perfect formula in the church as well. The other. They're bad. God hates them too. Really? I can't find that in the Bible. Because here's the problem. Revenge is a lie. Easter morning is God's final commentary on revenge. This is what Moltman says. The Easter faith recognizes that the raising of the crucified Christ from the dead provides the great alternative to this world of death. This faith sees the raising of Christ as God's protest against death and against all who work for death. For the Easter faith recognizes God's passion for the life of the person who is threatened by death. In other words, Easter morning proves that forgiveness wins and revenge loses. Revenge might be more popular. It may not seem foolish, but it's still a lie. Easter holds up grace and forgiveness as the final truth and revenge as the final untruth. See, here's the thing. Before Jesus was crucified, he preached forgiveness with startling clarity. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. He continues, But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Forgive and you will be forgiven. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. This both amazes me and terrifies me. And these are just a few of the things. This amazes me because Christ was often vague if you read scripture. Very vague at times. You're just like, what does he mean by that? But this is remarkably clear. There's nothing gray about this. And it terrifies me because I, like so many Christians, tend to try to talk myself out of these excruciatingly convicting demands to forgive. I was thinking about it this week. You know, I, I, I don't, I'm not saying this stuff. You don't have to agree with me. I, it's fine. I don't ask people to come to Gana to agree with me. But th- this is what Jesus says. This is how Jesus lived. He, this, is, this is the God of Christianity, supposedly. So I was thinking about this this week. Claiming to be a Christian... And I'm not talking about forgiving. That's really hard to do. We'll we'll talk about that in a second. But I'm just talking about acknowledging this is what God wants us to do. That's all I'm talking about. Okay? I'm just talking about acknowledging that, yeah, you know what? If we're going to follow Christ, we probably should at least acknowledge we should be loving our enemies. Okay? So this starts there. So I was thinking about this. I was like, you know, to call ourselves a Christian and to continue to not at any level buy into this, whether you do it or not, we'll get there. But... Just to not buy into this mentally at any level, that's like this. That's like telling everyone you are a diehard Red Sox fan and all you do is wear Yankees gear, go to Yankees game, and support the Yankees. Like, it's like, I was thinking about it. We 
even work. Or you're a diehard Patriots fan and all you do is wear New York Giants gear and support the New York Giants. It doesn't make sense at any level. Unless you're following some other Jesus Christ that's not found in the pages of Scripture, which is fine. It's fine. But what I take about my struggling attempts to follow Jesus Christ and take so seriously as what I'm supposed to be doing as a follower of Jesus Christ is trying to at least help people to acknowledge this is what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And if you don't like that, you don't have to. But if you're going to wear Yankees gear, just call yourself a Yankees fan. It's okay. You don't have to pretend you're a Red Sox fan. God still loves you. You'll figure it out someday, I hope. Not the Yankees Red Sox thing. I don't know. That did. I, I forgot to qualify what I meant there. If you're not into this grace and forgiveness, it's okay. But maybe it's time to rethink the whole idea that everything's fine with you and God. Maybe it's not. Oh, God still loves you and never will not love you. That's the whole point of Easter. He loves everyone. But to engage that love, to be a Christian, this is Christianity. When we don't forgive, or at least want to forgive, Easter morning becomes nothing but a theological fact we need to subscribe to. And maybe that's what happened to Christianity in America. Maybe you've been part of that Christianity where, hey, just believe this one thing right properly, get it correct, and you're all set. But if Easter is just a theological fact, who cares? But if Easter is true, then it is an earth-shattering, life-changing, feast-giving reality we are invited to live into, a feast of freedom from our sins, our own pain, our own fears. A feast to celebrate by participating in it, not simply observing it as a Christian doctrine. Honestly, let's be honest. How many Easter's have we seen come and go in our lives? Right? Except for little Abel and Grace, a lot of them. This is my 53rd. How many Easter sermons have we heard and forgotten? Like, we're all going to forget this one in three days. Tito's going to forget it in three minutes. How many times have we been figuratively brought to a tomb on Easter morning, an empty tomb, and we've claimed some sort of acknowledgement of resurrection as fact, and then spent the rest of the year rolling the stone back over the tomb? For every time we have a chance to forgive, and if we're human, and if we're interacting with people at any level, we have plenty of chances to forgive. Every time we have a chance to forgive and choose not to, we roll the stone back over the tomb. And when we do that, it doesn't matter what we say we believe about resurrection. It doesn't matter how much we celebrate Easter. See, here's the deal. Jesus didn't just talk about this. He didn't just talk about forgiveness. He forgave. I think I have this just by itself here. 
I love the way people take Matthew 5 and go, oh, that's, that can't be true. Jesus didn't mean that. Well, here's the deal. He did all this. He did all this. When they stole his coat at the trial, he gave him a shirt at the cross. When the Pharisees hit him on one cheek at the home of the high priest, he let the soldiers hit him on the other at Pilate's. When they forced him to go one mile from Gethsemane to the Roman barracks, he went with them too, from the Roman barracks all the way to Calvary. And while they were nailing his arms and legs to the cross, his blood still warm on his, their hands, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Foolish. Foolish. And I understand. I get it. Especially because the darkness of Calvary and the silence of the Friday and Saturday make it seem that he was a fool to forgive, a fool to love his enemies, a fool to not fight back. He died. But if we're Christians, it's not about the death, it's about the resurrection. And Easter morning says different. But again, like we've talked about, I understand. Easter morning is really hard to believe in. I know that. It is hard to believe in. I mean, the disciples were standing looking at the guy, right? And they were having trouble believing it. How much more difficult is it for us who rarely see love win? Rarely. Who rarely see forgiveness work. Maybe that's why a lot of us don't forgive. We do it and it doesn't change anything. The people we're supposed to forgive just keep hurting us. So why not just kill them instead? I get it. How much more difficult is it to believe in Easter when even within our own Christianity we have teachers who have become so disillusioned with the power of of forgiveness that we preach a God who settles scores with an instrument entirely different than the cross he died on? How much more difficult is it when Christian teachers have given up on forgiveness and teach the resurrection of Christ is just symbolic and no more spectacular than the rebirth of the trees and flowers in the spring? How much more difficult is it to believe in Easter when we ourselves claim to believe in God's forgiveness for us? and even tell others he's a forgiving God, but then live our lives without forgiveness in them. How much more difficult is it for us who do not forgive even ourselves for the things we have done? And so, when it is so difficult to believe in Easter, believe in grace and forgiveness, then the question is, what shall we do? Well, I think Christ's own answer to the struggling disciples can help us here. Do you have anything to eat? So here's the disciples not believing he's risen from the dead, and he says, do you have anything to eat? Now, I know it seems this is a simple scene in which the lesson is supposed to be when they see him eat, they will believe he's alive, but I suggest it goes deeper than that. He asked them to do something. He asked them to do something. I believe it was in the doing that they found their faith. So remember the story of the woman at the well? Some of you remember that, have read it before. Well, the disciples, he sent the disciples to get food, and then when he, they come back with the food, he's not hungry. And they're just all confused by this. Why are you not eating? Why are you not hungry? And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. 
that food he was talking about was offering forgiveness to that woman. That was his mission. And then in Matthew 25, Jesus tells us that what we do to the least of these, we do one to him. Feed him, give him a drink, love him, etc. And what is it that is most needed in this world? Grace and forgiveness. Do you have anything to eat? Go and forgive. Go and love. Go and feed. You see, to forgive is to finally understand that forgiveness is real. And this is what terrifies me the most when I'm in those modes where I don't want to forgive others and when I talk like Jesus didn't say any of this stuff. It terrifies me because maybe I don't realize I have to be forgiven. I think some of us have this real entitlement that God just loves us. And I, that terrifies me. Because it's going to be a really, really challenging conversation with a God who's all about forgiveness and you're going to try to tell him you didn't need to be forgiven. But when we know we need to be forgiven and we know we've been forgiveness, then I think that's when we start living forgiveness. So it's sort of this catch-22. To understand that there is nothing we can do that God won't forgive and therefore has forgiven us is to believe in forgiveness and to start living it out. Right? To live into the reality that death is not the final answer is to believe that the resurrection did happen. So what are we to do if we don't believe in this? Do it. When we find it so hard to believe in forgiveness, forgive. Live Easter. This is exactly what Stephen McDonald did. Stephen McDonald's in the wheelchair. In 1986, while his wife was a few months pregnant with their first child, Stephen was working as a New York City policeman. On the night of July 12th, while patrolling Central Park, he came across three kids up to no good and started talking to them. Without warning, one of the kids, 15-year-old, Jones pulled a gun and shot Stephen three times. One of the bullets shattered his spinal column, and he has been a paraplegic from his neck down ever since. While in the hospital recovering from those wounds, Stephen tells about how he was certain the Christian response was to forgive the young man, but he did not want to and fought against it. That's beautiful. There is nothing more normal than that. Because what's so beautiful about that is there he is lying there going, I'm not going to forgive this kid, but I know I should. <clears throat> That's saying you're a Red Sox fan and wearing the Red Sox uniform, even if you can't do it. But at least he knew if he's going to be a Christian, that's what Jesus would want. It took a year. And on the day he had his son baptized, he chose to forgive. And boy, is that beautiful. Because there he is living out a Christian faith. And though he didn't want to do something, recognizing that is what the Christian faith he's claiming to believe in says, I should do this. How many of us come to church, sing these songs, take communion? Do we at least acknowledge what Jesus is saying to us? Whether we live it or not, do we at least acknowledge that's where we should be? He forgave. He even contacted the boy in prison. And he and his wife became good friends with that young man. And when he got out of prison... That young man 
would join Stephen and they would travel around because Stephen has a mission to speak about forgiveness. To this day, Stephen McDonald still travels to tell his story and to everyone who listens, he explains, the only thing worse than a bullet in my spine would have been revenge. That's the story of Easter. And Stephen McDonald learned it to be true when he started to live it. Stephen knew that while the Jesus story may seem like an April Fool's, revenge is really the fool. And here's the good news. All of this, following Christ is not some command that makes little sense, that is foolish, that is a church dictate, and that has no purpose outside of the confines of church and religion. That's where we have fallen down as a great faith in this world. We've kept all the beautiful truth locked up inside walls. When it's out there, we should be living forgiveness. Living like Christ. This is not just an ideal we talk about on Easter morning. It is an invitation to life itself the way we were designed to live most fully. So hear me on this. It may hurt to offer mercy. I'm not doubting that. It may be horribly painful to forgive our enemies. That pain I know. It may shatter our security to offer grace. Absolutely it might. In fact, it may lead to our death to love unconditionally. But here's the question. Here's the question. If this is the life of God, if it is, the central claim we make, Jesus Christ is God, God of the universe. If that is true, and his death and all of this kind of living leads to resurrection, do we really want any other life? Honestly? I know I don't. I will forego the instant gratification of seeing my enemy suffer if it means I will have an eternity of peace. I know revenge may be more entertaining. I know it may make us feel good for a moment or two. But it, and not the Christ event, is really the great April Fool's joke. For the joke is sadly on us when we don't forgive. Because it only brings us more suffering. It keeps us prisoners of our own pain and hatred and ultimately brings more death. Forgiveness is different. Forgiveness frees us from our pain, our suffering, our prisons of hatred and hurt. If we're not sure what to think about Easter, about resurrection, if we find it too difficult to forgive, I am confident if we live into it, we will discover it to be true too. We will discover that not only are we loved and forgiven by God, but that love and forgiveness is life the way it was meant to be lived. Grace and forgiveness bring healing and resurrection, and resurrection makes every day Easter. Thanks be to God. Amen. Now the band's going to sing one more song.